series through the, the book of 1 John. I hope you guys have enjoyed and have, uh, have grown and developed in your uh, relationship and understanding with our Lord through this really incredible book. It really is an incredible study. You got, I know we uh, basically did somewhat of a survey through this book, but I would encourage you, read straight through it. It takes about 20 minutes to actually read through it. It's a very short book, but it's jam-packed with incredible truth that is practical. It's very practical and immediately applicable. More important, it's actually testing. We'll see that in a second. Last week, Pastor Mark uh, shared with, uh, did a great job in giving us uh, uh, some increased background and context and purpose for John writing this epistle. And one of those purposes was to combat the false teaching by some antichrists at the time that believers did not actually have eternal life through Jesus Christ. But believers do have eternal life. And John specifically addresses this in our text this morning when he says the words, I write these things that you may know you have eternal life. Well, what things did he write exactly? We're gonna get to that in a little bit. The title of this message this morning is called Salvation assurance and examination. Now there's a lot going on in this chapter, chapter 5 of 1 John. But there's one thing I want us to hone in on as we close this study. It's, it is a common thread that is, that is found throughout the book. In this letter, John says things like, if we say we have fellowship with God... Then this, if anyone walks in the light, then this will be true. If anyone says, I love God, then this will be a reality. These statements and similar ones are all followed by a contrasting reality check that was intended to assure the reader of their salvation, of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, when you read 1 John straight through, it's hard to not see these statements and be prompted yourself to truly evaluate the faith claim that we have. To personally evaluate your own claim to faith. Especially the one that John makes in our passage this morning in chapter 5, which draws a very clear Lying in the sand, if you will, about whose side you're really on. And that's what we're spending most of our time this morning. So if you have your Bibles, would you please open with me to 1 John chapter 5. And we'll go ahead and get the, the main lights turned on in here so you guys can read. John makes several statements throughout this letter and that would no doubt prompt an honest hearer, an honest reader to truly evaluate themselves spiritually. But in what way? These faith-testing statements would either encourage the hearer to salvation assurance or it may very well challenge the hearer to examine the legitimacy of their faith claim. That shouldn't frighten us. The intent of John's words here is to encourage, to assure, because he was speaking to believers, believing Jews in this letter. And there was a combating uh, words here to, to counter this idea that they did not indeed have eternal life through Jesus Christ. He was giving them the reasons why they could have assurance in that reality. This is not the only place that we find words that would prompt us to evaluate our, our claim to faith. Paul also instructs the church in Corinth to examine themselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. How do you test yourself? How does one who says, I am a Christian, I am a child of God, 
if they enter to a time of doubt or questioning about where they actually stand before God, how would one actually test themselves? If someone is self-deluded and claim faith, yet their life is outside of the will of God, how would that person be prompted to test themselves? How would they even go about doing so? Or do you not realize this about, uh, this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Do you think that happens? Do you think it's possible for someone to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and not actually be one of the Lord's? Why would it be necessary to test ourselves? I mean, can I just recite the sinner's prayer and just move on with my life? Can I just recite the sinner's prayer and say, all right, I got my ticket to heaven. Now I don't have to worry about that. I'm going to go about living my life as usual. Is that the reality we see in Scripture? Can't I just claim faith and be done with it? Well, for one, there's no such thing as a sinner's prayer, per se, in Scripture. Ephesians 2 teaches us that you are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. Now, that can certainly happen in a prayer, but it's not the fact that you pray that saved you. You cannot find your assurance in a prayer. Not any more so than going to church or being baptized or doing good deeds saves us. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. That one comes to saving faith. Why is self-examination important? Why do we have several statements just in this one book that would prompt one to evaluate one's faith? Well, Jesus made it clear that empty religion and false conversion are real things. If you don't believe me, look at, look at Matthew 7. One of the most sobering passages in all of scripture, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What? I thought everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said, only that who actually does the will of the Father will enter in. Why? He said, I never knew you. They had some display of religious behavior, but did not walk with God. Again, we're not going to unpack that passage, but I would encourage you to go look at it. What is Jesus actually saying there? The man in Matthew 7 is not confused as to who Jesus is. He says, Lord, Lord. Not just Lord, not just Master. Lord of Lords. And he did godly things. They did not walk with God. Listen, you were never meant to wonder. God doesn't want you, God doesn't want his children to guess if they belong to him or not. How do we know that? God is not the author of confusion. If it's not clear, God is not the one that's prompting that, un, that, that confusion. He is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints, Paul says. Peace is a provision from God to those who belong to him. And unrest as to whether or not you belong to him? Well, that's the opposite of peace. You know, the child of God does not need to wonder if he has eternal life. When someone asks, true child of God, are you, gonna go, are you going to heaven? Saying, I hope so, is the wrong answer. You understand what I'm saying? Saying, I hope so, and it might sound silly, but I'm, tell, I'm telling you, I've heard these words before. By those who know truth. 
you don't have to hope in, in this uh, in, the, in, the, in the loose uh, wish use of that word hope. The biblical use of the word hope is a certainty. It's known. Saying I hope so in the way of a wish. It's a wrong answer. But that being said, it would be foolish to assume that we, would, that we don't ever need to examine our, ourselves. That we don't need to examine our faith plan. Especially when the word of God would prompt you to do so. In fact, there are several passages in Scripture that would call the reader, that would call the hearer to examine themselves. And a significant cluster of these are found throughout the book of 1 John. Now, like I said, we're going to focus mainly on the one in chapter 5. But since this is the last study on 1 John, let's briefly just revisit five of these statements that were given in previous chapters. Because they all work together here. Now understand these are going to be some loaded passages that uh, we're, going to, we're going to revisit. Uh, and each of them can easily have their own sermon series. And so we're not going to uh, spend too much time on these. We're not, it's just going to be a brief look at them. Uh, I will spend, I won't, I'm not going to spend equal time on each of them either. Uh, it, but if any of these would prompt some examination of your heart... I would encourage you to go and re-examine the passage for yourself. God, what are you really saying here? Specifically, what are you prompting in me? If you love the Lord and you belong to him, I guarantee you your faith will be enriched. Saying, God, that is me. That is a work you are displaying in my life. Or you may be challenged. You may be challenged to evaluate the legitimacy of your faith claim. Well, let's look at these, try to get through them quickly. Number one, if you claim faith, you will not walk in darkness. In 1 John chapter 1, verse number 6, he says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet... Walk in darkness. We lie. And we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. One another. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Remember that walking illustration we talked about a while back? The word walk is a very practical use in this passage here. When you're walking with someone in fellowship, are you walking like this? One way in front of the other? When you're walking with someone, where are you? You're next to each other. But we follow him. We go where he leads. But we're walking with him. Okay, here's the key. As he is in the light... So are we also. Not specifically because of the acts of our hands, but because we are with him. And we are following where he goes. What did Jesus say? I only do the work that I see my father doing. And he's always working. I only do what I see him doing. Now, if Jesus is walking this way and someone says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And they're walking away from the light. They're literally in darkness. There's something wrong here. That's not walking with. You understand what I'm saying? The, the word walk, the very practical use, I mean, the, it's a very practical word here. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. So if we claim faith, if we claim to have fellowship with him, you will not be walking in darkness as a pattern of life. I know that's a loaded statement. It may sound like a blanket statement, but I would encourage you, go look at this passage. Unpack it a little bit further. What does it mean to walk with? Number two, it's not about perfection. Yes, we're going to be walking with the Lord, but it does not mean that we don't stumble. 
Why is it that God allows our faith to be stretched? Even in our own, even in, in our own self-inflicted wounds, when God says uh, he works out all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, why does he say things like that? Why are those realities for the life of a believer? What happens to your faith after stretching? It's stronger. There's even purpose in the mistakes that we make. There's purpose in stumbling. There's purpose. However, that being said, our life strive would be toward obedience to the Lord. He says, if we claim faith, I'm sorry, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth uh, uh, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Isn't that a, a, an encouraging truth? If we claim, however, if we, if we claim um, we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. I like that bumper sticker. Not perfect, just forgive it. When confronted with the holiness of God, a true believer will not fail to immediately recognize his imperfection before the Lord, his sin before the Lord. Nor will he deny this desperate need for forgiveness and redemption that can only be provided by the Lord through his son Christ. That's a beautiful truth we can spend a lot of time on. But I told you we're going to go through these, try to get through these quickly. So number three, if you claim faith, you will keep his commands. Now that might sound like an impractical blanket statement saying, well, I thought you just said uh, we're not going to be perfect. How are we going to keep his commandments? Aren't we going to stumble? First John 2, 4 says, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. That word know him, that phrasing, I know him, is not just a surface level understanding or knowledge. The word know is describing a oneness. When Jesus said, I never knew you, he wasn't saying, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of your existence. That's not, not what he was saying. He said, I was never one with you. When Adam knew his wife, they begot their son, Seth. He wasn't just aware of his wife and, they, and she got pregnant. They were one, united as one. The word know here has a very specific application in God's word. That references a union that's unlike any other kind of togetherness you can experience. I think that's why Ephesians 5 describes and paints this picture of Christ and the church in the union that's painted under the covenant of marriage. Check it out. Ephesians chapter 5. But what does the word keep mean here? It's obviously not talking about perfection. If anyone says we're without sin, we'll make him to be a liar. So what is it talking about? First John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Is that the reality that we're living in? Again, not about perfection, but if someone does claim faith, the pattern of his life would be marked by the great lengths he would go to to carefully and joyfully preserve God's righteousness in his life. The word keep here means to watch over. It means to protect. It means to guard. It means to, to preserve. Now, I'm not sure if any of us would be a, you know, the shining example of, 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 of success in this area. I, I certainly am not. But at the very least, do even small compromises in your walk bother you? Do they, are they noticeable? When anything 
is introduced into your life that could potentially be an obstruction between you and a, lo- a, a pure love relationship with our Father. What is your attitude toward that, uh, th- that thing? What, what, what is, uh, do you, is it attacked? Is it, is it, is it pushed against? Do even the smallest idea of, of, of a compromise, does it go unnoticed? Of course, I'm not suggesting any sort of legalism here, but personal compromise to any degree should be noticed by the believer. It should, in fact, it should bother. You know, I'm sometimes surprised. Listen, I fail all the time, but I, it, it, those failures don't go unnoticed. I, I'm surprised sometimes when, when you know, a, a professing, a, someone who claims faith, a professing Christian would, you know, share with me how amazing this movie was or this TV show was and, and, and follow it up quickly with, oh, you know what, though? Actually, I don't think you would like that. Why don't you think I would like that? Well, because it's, you know, it's, it's got a lot of nudity and vulgar language and this and that. And I'm like, well, why do you like it? You know, because it's a great movie. You know, it's a great TV show. And that kind of stuff just doesn't bother me. My question would be, why not? Why doesn't it bother you? I mean, do you think it should bother us? I mean, it bothered David. You know what David said? In David one, in, in, in Psalms 101, this is what he says. I will set no vile thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who turn aside. I will have no part of it. I don't want that introduced into my life. Can you avoid vulgarities or, or vile things in this world? No. But does it bother you? Or have you become calloused? the things that may displease the Lord. David, a man after God's own heart, sought to preserve God's righteousness in his life, and he took no pleasure in looking on the vulgar works of the unrighteous. But when he did, we all know David fell. Oh, and he fell hard. And when he was called out by it, called out on it by, by Nathan, it bothered him greatly. In fact, he was broken by it. When we willfully allow that which displeases the Lord into our lives, by our own choice, by our own volition, and God brings that to attention, puts his finger on that saying, hey, that is an obstruction between me and you. And I want that out. Are we broken over that? David was certainly fully restored. And Solomon gives us a a bit of warning. He says, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. What do you allow in to affect the innermost, invisible, intangible part of who you are? We are to guard our hearts. Why? That's where our affections come from. And guarding our hearts does not happen passively. No, rather it, it involves willful action. Willful action against whatever could sway your loyalty from God. So First John says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Who are they lying to exactly? I mean, they're not fooling God. Who are they lying to? Lying to themselves. And the truth is not in him. Look, if we claim faith, we're not going to be callous or desensitized to something that is displeasing to the Lord. At the very least, it will not go unnoticed. And if we're walking with him, it would bother us. If I'm walking with him and, I don't know, I dropped the F-bomb or something. You know, we get that picture here. This alters our behavior. More so, it alters our awareness of what we're allowing in this relationship. Because God is right there. You understand what I'm saying here? Again, we can unpack these things further, but let's move on. 
Number four, if you have greater affections for the world than you do for God, this should prompt something in you. This should prompt a, 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 a check. This should cause you to check yourself. It says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Again, it's not talking about perfection here. But the reality is if you claim faith, your heart will not be consistently captivated by the things of the world. It would not be constantly overpowered by the offerings of the world, by worldly satisfactions that strain this relationship. You will not be ruled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Stephen and I had a very thought-provoking conversation about the word love in passages like this and how inaction, agape love, is closely likened to the word loyalty. So much so that I'd say there, you cannot have love without loyalty. Loyalty means faithfulness, devotion, allegiance. Think about this. Loyalty is not so much about sinless perfection, but it is certainly about an ever committed refusal to shift your priority. Well, who's the priority? That which you're loyal to. If your loyalties are to the world, your commitments will not shift from the world. But if he is the priority, your loyalty is with him. And that will be demonstrated in the decisions that you make, the places that you go, the company that you keep. You understand what I'm saying? No matter how alluring, alluring the, the satisfactions of this world, you choose. You consistently, out of this, this desire to remain loyal in this love relationship with God, you choose to be fully satisfied in that love relationship with him. That's loyalty. Is that reflected in your life? Listen, if we are constantly more excited about the latest trends, cares, and affairs of this world than we are about pursuing God, then our affections are for the world. And John just simply says the the love of the fathers is not in you. Again, you might be thinking, Zeke, this sounds very impractical. Go and search the scriptures for yourself to see if these things be true. Don't take my word for it. These aren't my opinions. I would love to spend more time on each one of these, but we're going to move on. Number five, you will, if you claim faith. Again, these are all just the cluster of statements made in 1 John. If you claim faith, you will demonstrate loyal love for the brethren. In this, the child of God and the children of the devil are, manif are manifest, saying, here is how you can tell the difference of who's who. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. We already covered that. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Four seven. Of First John says, "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and anyone who loves is born of God, and knows Him. It is one with Him." Did you know you you we can't even begin to understand, let alone express agape love apart from God. The fact that one is even able to demonstrate selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love for his neighbor is an indication of something spiritually transformative that has taken place in that person's life. He who does not love does not know God. It can't be much clearer than that. Why? For God is love. The character and nature of the one we're claiming faith to is demonstrated is there's an outpouring 
of his fruit in our life. What does uh, Galatians 5.22 say? What does Galatians 5.22 say? The fruit of the Spirit, whose Spirit? God's Spirit, not yours. The fruit of the Spirit, capital S, is love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, selflessness, gentleness. I'm making up, I'm making up some. There's nine of them. Um, the first one is love. Is that your work? No, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit, sorry, let me rephrase that. The fruit of the Spirit, capital S, is love. That is his work demonstrated through the one who truly claims faith. The one who truly belongs to him and therefore has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Is that evident? Well, how does that get manifested? By how we love each other. Well, I'm just not a loving person. Well, I just don't get along with people. I just can't trust people anymore. I've been hurt too many times. Well, you better figure this out. Because you cannot love the people of God and also keep them at arm's length at the same time. That's not the love we're seeing as a measure of genuine faith here in this passage. Remember the two greatest commandments, love God, love one another. So a real and tangible answer to one's own personal faith test can really be made evident in how you love the brethren. Or if we don't. Jesus said this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Who's everyone here? It's the world. John is saying, he's also pointing out that you yourself will know that you belong to him by how you love each other. Is that reality, is that reality, is that reality reflected in your life? Because if it is, it should prompt assurance in your life but listen if it's not it should prompt evaluation examination you know if you are challenged at this point so far let's just say worst case scenario you've claimed faith all your life and you're the man in Matthew 7 father didn't I prophesy in your name which means foretell God's word which means he was familiar with it God, didn't I cast out demons in your name? I don't know how many of you have cast out a demon. I haven't. That's certainly a godly thing, a a powerful work. God, didn't I perform many mighty works in your name? This guy that's being described in Matthew 7 is not a pew potato. You know what a pew potato is, right? Well, you know what a couch potato is. What's a pew potato? Sit in church, do nothing. He was confused as to who Jesus was, and he did stuff. And Jesus said, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You who walked in darkness. You, I never knew you. We didn't have fellowship. We didn't have oneness. Listen, if any of these have been a challenge, we haven't even got to that passage yet. We'll get there. But if any of these have been a challenge so far, Consider it an act of grace by our gracious Father to bring this to your attention. That no one would be in this room a Matthew 7 person who is confused when they stand before the Father. Because he had called you, he had called your attention. Now, if you know you walk with the Lord, I'm hoping that these statements are just so encouraging to your soul. And Lord, I indeed do belong to you. I see you working these things out. Now let's get to the fifth one, the last one. I mean, the sixth one, the one here in First John chapter five. If you claim faith, you will believe God's own testimony of the Son. Okay, well, what's this about? I mean, who would claim faith in God and then purposefully deny God's testimony about anything? let alone what he says about his own son. In our passage in 1 John chapter 5, 9 through 13, it offers a very specific challenge here or a, a, some very specific clarity 
But who is he talking about here? What person would deny the testimony of God himself about Christ? Remember, John is talking to believing Jews in this letter, and his statements of God's testimony here were directly against a claim made by some antichrists of the day, some who acknowledge God but not eternal life through his son Christ, denying what God said who Jesus was. God, God said, this is my son whom I, I am well pleased. A significant issue of the time was that people would understand and acknowledge God, but deny Christ. But is that really any different than today? Have you met any antichrists lately? You might be thinking, no, I don't think so. I haven't met the Antichrist. Not the Antichrist. Antichrists. I think you have. You ever heard of people who believe in God? And may even have some outward committed or some deep appreciation for godly things, but don't have anything to do with Christ? It was happening then and at the time of this writing, and I would submit that it's still happening today. In fact, today, the number of people who would say they believe in God, but do not believe in the person of Christ and what he accomplished and what the Bible says who he is and the, de de and the declarations he made of himself and the eyewitness accounts of those who observed his life, his death, and his resurrection is actually surprisingly alarming. It's alarmingly high. Barna has some really interesting studies on this. I would encourage you to go check out some of these numbers. But if you listen to a person like this, if you listen to them speak about spiritual things, you can pick up usually on the verbal clues. The verbal indications of someone like this is informally referred to as God talkers. God talk. You ever heard God talk before? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. I say my prayers and talk to him every day. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. I know he has actually helped me through a lot of things, a lot of struggles in my life. Yeah, I know God. I believe in God. I, I take my, and I take my relationship with him very seriously. You ever heard expressions like that? But the person behind those words makes no intentional connection to Christ. There's a lot of godly sentiments, but no thriving love relationship with Christ. No thriving love relationship with Jesus. God talk sentiments are common almost everywhere. I mean, especially in regions of the world where uh, you know, there have been culturally influenced by Christianity in some way, which would include our areas here. But according to what we see in this passage, what we're going to see here in chapter 5, this idea of communing with God apart from God is just not possible. Vague God talk apart from coming to him through Christ is actually illegitimate and tragically delusional. It's actually not much different than the dead faith described in James chapter 2. You know who believes in God? but does not have a relationship with him through, through saving faith in Christ. He says, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble. Except with God talkers, there doesn't seem to be much trembling, I'm afraid. All right, let's look at the passage. I'm going to talk quickly here. First John chapter 5, verse number 9. It says this, since we believe human testimony surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from god and god has testified about his son all who believe in the son of god know in their hearts that this testimony is true those who don't believe this are actually calling god a liar 
because they don't believe what God has testified about his son. Okay, so what did God testify about his son exactly? Let me try to frame this with the full weight of what verse 11 is saying with just a few thoughts to consider. First, how would you obtain the facts of a given event if you were not around to observe it? If you were not around to be witness to it? You would ask someone who was there, right? In the court of law, they call, this, they call these people witnesses. And what does a witness do? A court witness is an individual called to testify or provide evidence relevant to the facts of the court case. Now, unless the credibility of the witness is disparaged in any way, their eyewitness account of the facts are, will serve as proof. Throughout human history, this has been an adequate method for obtaining truth, right? In Deuteronomy 19.15, it describes that in order to establish the facts of a matter, the facts had to be established by the mouths of two or three witnesses. We know this. Why did it have to be by two or three witnesses? So that it was to ensure an accurate account. Now consider this. The majority of God's word was given by first-hand account of eyewitnesses of man, right? And so we believe those recorded accounts to be truthful and reliable. So if man's testimony can be accepted when adequately, adequately attested, how much more so should the testimony of God himself be accepted and believed? Shouldn't there be a point of tension for a person who's all about God talk, but there's practically an ignoring of, his, of the son. There's an intentional discarding of the son. What are we talking about? That doesn't ever happen. I think we just gave you some examples of how that does. So in 1 John chapter 9, he says, since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God himself testifies about his son. In other words, John is saying here, Here is God's testimony about his son, which, by the way, should be accepted because God's testimony is far greater than any human testimony. But what does he say? What is this testimony exactly? We're getting there. But a God talker in this context has no reason to deny God's own testimony about who he said Jesus was. So what was it? Verse number 11. This is it. This is what God says about his son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life. And, it, and this life is in his son. Whoever has a son has life. Listen, whoever does not have the son does not have life. If you're not coming to God through the son, you don't have the father. John leaves no middle ground here. You won't find a suspension of opinion here. Not in these words. He says, whoever does not have the son does not have life. What's the opposite of life? Death. What's death? Biblically, death means separation. In John 8, 24, it says, therefore I have said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Look, there is no eternal life without Christ. There is no forgiveness of sins without Christ. There is no talking to God apart from Christ. There isn't this passive, vague God talk as a reflection in anything in in, in spiritual reality. None of that is possible apart from Christ. Listen to me, there is no relationship with God without coming through him. The Father and the Son come together. You cannot have one without the other. Either you have the Father with and through the Son, or you have nothing. You know, there is a reason we pray to God by the Spirit in the name of Jesus. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ who denies the uh, he he is the uh, he is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. This is how vague God talk can so critically obscure reality for people. Think about it. Who are they lying to again? 
Listen, believing in God without believing in the Son is just self-deceiving religious veneer. That is eternally dangerous. Not only that, but John points out that it's actually an accusation against God himself. In verse 10, he says, all who believe in the Son, the Son of God, know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar. Who is Jesus to you? Do you simply know of him? Or does he know you? If you look at this list, there's more here in chapter 5, but if you were simply just to look at these faith-testing statements in 1 John, would they give you peace of assurance or the concern of doubt? My hope is that you would unpack these things for yourself a little bit further, not just rely on how I've presented them to you. I am an imperfect messenger, but God's word is not imperfect. And he is your schoolmaster, and I would encourage you to go and see these things measure up against your faith claim. And if it does, my brother, my sister, be encouraged. Be encouraged in the assurance of your eternal life found in Christ. But if any of these statements instead challenge the legitimacy of your claim, please don't be discouraged. Look, there's nothing wrong with experiencing doubt as long as your results, as long as your response results in increased faith. So it is imperative that we do not ignore the prompting of God if the Holy Spirit has graciously extended to you the grace to see clearly.